You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon. Hello, I'm Matt. And I'm JR. And this week we are, after probably too long so that people have forgotten, going back into our season 10 reviews with Carnival of Monsters. And by the time we do the next one, another at least three months will have passed. So this will be the longest review series in the history of review series. This is... Yeah. Before we do, though, are you reading my notes? Yes. (laughs) I don't normally have notes... I've actually made notes this time. I wasn't actually reading your notes. You so I, was reading, down? I was reading the DVDs you've been reviewing, just so I can sort of get ahead of you a bit. Okay. Well, we may get to them if we have oh, time. Okay. Well, you're reading those upside. I had a weird phenomenon the other day where um, well, I went, went to the vets and it was a glass door, and on the outside of the door it said push, but it was engraved into the glass door. So when I went back out again, my brain automatically flipped. read it as push. Yeah. Oh. And I walked into the door. Did you? Mm. Idiot. Oh, I wasn't going to use that word, so I'm glad you did. Before we talk about... A bad mood. Are you in a bad mood? <laughs> no, not really. All right, let's get into it then. Oh, okay. Let's get into... <laughs> oh, the, the thing, yeah. Yeah, the thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, and we're recording this like several days before you're going to hear this, but I went on the Radio Times website earlier today, and this is the Tuesday after the trailers and whatnot have come out. Yes. And obviously it's promotion time for Series 10 of Doctor Who. And so I don't have an issue with promotion. And obviously now that the Radio Times is independent and they're probably not selling as many copies as they did before, you know, everybody had digital tellies and electronic program guides... But as a postman who pushes these strings through people's doors, I can tell you they're still selling a lot of copies. Mm-hmm. But the way they... And it's not just them, obviously. It's everybody else who does it too. I went on the Radio Times website, and in the last five and a half days, there have been 20 clickbait stories about Doctor Who alone, which seems to me a ridiculous number. They're just really scraping the barrel with some of them. But that's not really the issue. The issue is the way the stories are phrased. Mm. I mean, the Stephen Moffat story. Stephen Moffat goes on the record as part of an interview and says Doctor Who would be better if it had more money. Mm. Which is, as Matt said before we started recording, which has been true since 1963. It's hardly (laughs) a news story. But the way the Radio Times spins it in the headline is, Stephen Moffat says Doctor Who's not as good as it could be. And of course, everybody's then, well, damn right, he's writing it's it. It's all blue touch paper stuff, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. It's the definition yeah. of click, it's tabloid clickbait. Yeah. The, 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 the link, the article title says one thing and you click into it and it basically says what you already knew. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Stephen Moffat would want more, do- more money for Doctor Who. It's just not. 
It's fake news. Yeah. Sad. Do you know the thing that annoyed me about that, though? Wasn't necessarily the headline and the story. Because you knew before you clicked it that the story wasn't going to be what the headline said. But the when the Radio Times put it out on their Facebook page, instead of just giving you the headline, that there's a line underneath that says, OK then, fans, over to you. Sort of thing. It was an incitement for yeah. fans to start yeah. arguing amongst themselves. Basically, it was inciting arguments in order to engender clicks. Mm. And I just thought that was a new low, even for sort of clickbaitism. But the one particularly that we were talking about today, the one that's come out today, was the um, Pearl Mackey story. Yeah. Which, that's in the Radio Times as well, but it's been everywhere. Mm. And again, it's another non-story. Yes. So I see. A, I saw a, a website today that said Pearl Mackey sacked from the series, <clears throat> and you click through t- to that, and it's basically saying, well, half of it's about how she was, how she was recruited to the series, and how she felt when she was recruited, and then the other half is just saying, maybe, maybe she's not coming back. She was on a one-year contract. It's that's yeah. The one I the one I saw had a quote from an insider that said, well, nothing's actually confirmed yeah, as yet. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. What a story. <laughs> and that, in, in that instance, rather than, it's worse than the Stephen Moffat thing because we know that Pearl Mackey is online. She's an online, an online presence. And it's basically defaming her. I mean, it's, mm. it's sort of saying she was sacked, which suggests that it's starting this narrative that she's done something wrong or yeah. deemed unsuccessful. Before mm. she's even when, appeared on screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's just not... That's that's beyond clickbait. That's just well. What's going to happen there is that people are going to watch the series now mm. with a mind that she's not very good before they've even seen her. Yeah, and that's yeah. just ridiculous. And the same thing happened with Free Maraji when she was in the series, because she she was only a, and it's it's. But at un- least people didn't know that she was going when she started. No, this happened halfway or partway through the series. She wasn't. She wasn't recruited for the next series, so they started talking about how she had been sacked and how she was unsuccessful, deemed unsuccessful. And, of course, the thing with Pearl Mackey as well, of course, is with Peter Capaldi leaving at the end of the series, whether she was ever given the indication that she might stay for a second series if he did or not, it must have been pretty obvious from the start with Chris Chibnall taking over that there would be Mm. a a sweep through. Yeah, Yeah. so... Mm. So the chances are, from right from the very start, they said to her, we need a companion for one series, you're up for the audition, you're auditioning for one series, you very likely won't get any more than one series, because very likely there'll be a complete change at the end of this series. So she's come on board, agreeing to do one series of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. And I now before was always... She- I well, it's that was always the plan. It's, 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 presumably, if you're an actor, that's what you expect. Is you you work yeah. in to work in, like knowing you've got nine months of solid work. Mm. Surely that's a luxury. You're used to you're used to not yeah. knowing what's happening after the next. Month. And not just nine months of solid work, but nine months of solid work that's going to put your face in front of millions of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And tens of a, millions of people. Give you the world. A, a retirement as a, as a convention as a convention goer. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but either way, she's not lost out in any way by yeah. only doing one series. No. And yet, the stories today—but they're all how, how, how badly done by she's been already. Well, no, but the, the, the oh, worst thing bad, is yeah. they're geared towards making she's her look been bad. Sacked, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not 
she's been let go. She's been sacked because, you know, she's been deemed unsuccessful. It's ridiculous. It's, my hunch has always been that this is the series that never was never going to be anyway, so it's an extra series for... For Stephen everybody. Mo- yeah, for Stephen Moffat to just kind of... Just go for but it and do something a bit different, and, and yeah. she's part of that little thing. And it's you've all- got extra... Nardole, um, Matt yeah. Lucas, yeah. and potentially as well, I mean, nobody's really said this, but if Stephen Moffat had left at the end of Series 9, and Chris Chibnall had come in for Series 10, potentially Peter Capaldi could have been a two-series doctor. Mm. So he, he, as far as we know, he's got an extra year out of this as well. Mm. Because regardless of the fact that he would have only done two, you still would have expected a new Doctor and Companion with Chris Chibnall. So we don't know what would have happened, but the way I look at it is it's an extra year of Peter Capaldi as well. Yeah, yeah. Should we talk about something happier? Okay. Well, I I, I say happier. (laughs) I don't know what either of you are going to say yet, because I don't know, but I'm assuming Carnival of Monsters then. Did we all enjoy it, Simon? Yes. I think it's joy. It's a joy. Yeah. Yeah. Matt? No. Liar. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Seriously, I'm really frustrated by it because I think it's really smart. It's got a fantastic script. It's a really good idea. <clears throat> but I just don't like it. <laughs> I just... Yeah, oh. It just falls flat for me. Fair All enough. right, we'll do the rest of this podcast without you. Okay. Mm. No, okay then. Well, I'm, so my, my mission this evening is to try and work out why, why it falls flat for me. Despite the fact well, that, that I can recognise that it is... It is really good. Mm. Well, we'll talk about the sort of metatextuality mm. and the modernity of it afterwards. Let's save that conversation for something separate. Mm. But in that case, how about this for a possible reason why it doesn't feel fulfilling? Mm. You've got two, sort of two, but basically two separate storylines. Mm-hmm. And one, and in the original script, you didn't get the second storyline on Into Minor until episode two. Yeah. The entire first episode, oh, okay. the entire first episode took place on the steamer in the original script. Right. Or in the original story outline. Mm-hmm. And then the bit where the hand comes in is where you find out there's something else going on. And that's when you relocate to Into Minor in episode two to find out what's going on there. You've got two separate storylines. The Doctor's storyline, which is investigating being inside the miniscope. Mm. The other storyline on Into Minor, where you've got this immigration storyline, as well as the sort of politics behind all this kind of stuff, that's a storyline that doesn't really resolve. No. So is that a possible reason why it might not necessarily be fulfilling? Not. That's not... A problem for me because the the storyline on Into Minor is all about kind of Kafkaesque bureaucracy. So to have it unresolved kind of well, works, yeah, but even in Kafka, you get to a resolution at the end. It's a resolution it's, well, of a kind. There's no resolution yeah. really of any kind. Yeah, but it also sets things up that don't yeah. even get addressed, let alone yeah. resolved, like the functionaries. Yeah. All through that first episode, and in fact, even up until episode four, because what we did was we watched episodes one to three at home, mm. and then we've watched episode four before we've started recording tonight. Yeah. Even in episode four, they're still way- making throwaway remarks about the functionaries, which are reflective of the proletariat in Britain in the 1970s, where things like the three-day week and such mm. were about to become an issue. Yeah. 
there's all these illusions, like the ones that Robert Holmes later makes in The Sunmakers, yeah. but he doesn't do anything with them. They're just there. They just sort of sit there and don't go anywhere and don't do it's anything. It's about focus, isn't it? About where the, the, story, the story focuses on something different, which is the only thing that does resolve is that they... They escape from the miniscope and they return everyone to where they're supposed to be. Yeah. I think for me it's the opposite of Terror of the Autons, which I'm also not a huge fan of. But Terror of the Autons is you. pure it's pure driving plot. It's incident, mm. incident, 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 explosion. Mm. This one it's, it's pure it's driving dri- standing it's, around. Well, it's driving it's driving <laughs> allegory, it's driving satire. So it's all about other things. But the plot isn't very strong. But again, I don't mind that. I think why I don't like it, and I think it's the direction. I think it's really flatly directed. Wow. It just lacks atmosphere. That's Barry Letts, isn't it? Yeah, but I think I think it seriously lacks, lacks atmosphere. I think it's well, a way you, of presenting the special effects. Every time we go with the interminorans, I can't even remember the names. I remember Pletrak's name, but it's the other two I'm thinking <laughs> yeah, of. yeah. Every time we go to them, where they're having one of these scenes behind the mm. scenes, where they're having some conversation in quiet before they come back out again, yeah. you get a little glimpse of what Interminer might be like. Yeah. And you get a bit of standing in the shadows and all this kind of stuff. Mm. What you really needed was for those scenes to be like the scenes in The Third Man, where they're sort of properly in the shadows. and he... or, or even Revenge of the Cybermen. So the way that so they remind me of the Vogans in Revenge of the Cybermen, but for some reason the Vogans the Vog, the Vogan world in Revenge of the Cybermen very similar scenes of just men looking stupid standing around arguing, but it's filmed with a degree yeah, of, yeah. a degree of atmosphere. Well, there's slightly lower angles, yeah, and yeah. there's and but, on location which helps. Them. Well, some of it's on location, but yeah. But even the stuff that's in the studio, yeah. in they've got a bigger set in the studio in Revenge of the Cybermen. And I'm not sure if it's on different levels, but there are different levels for the characters. Well, to be. presumably because they film some of it on location, some of it in the studio, they design the studio to kind so of reflect the location. Reflect the location yeah. here, it's just... It's, well, it's like the village in Planet of the Spiders. Because there's no location work to match it up to, it just feels it's like just a studio. Terrible, yeah. Well, and the other thing about it as well is they've built all these sets with multiple levels. Mm. Like on the inside of the miniscope, for a start, mm-hmm. the stuff that's in this, that's sort of in between the um, exhibits yeah. is all on sort of various levels. And then in episode one, you get the bit where the functionary climbs up on the roof of the machine or whatever it is. Yeah. And there's a couple of other scenes as well where they've built sets on multiple levels and then you get back to the actors and everything the actors do is all just standing around looking at each other. Yeah, I mean, you feel that it's set up to try out lots of special effects. You feel like, which is understandable for Barrelette because Mm. he tends to produce, he tends to make these stories which experiment with special effects. But presumably for that, there's a limit to how you move the camera. So things are locked off. I quite like the scene set in the circuitry of the miniscope, although my heart sank a bit when the doctor said, oh, this corridor will probably go on for miles. And you just you just think, <laughs> OK, that's obviously an in-joke by yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert Holmes, but it's also an in-joke that's quite accurate. That this, yeah, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. You know that these scenes are going to be them running around this same, <laughs> this same set. Well, that gets to, to the nub difference. of what the story's about, yeah. which is it's a story about people watching television. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But... Um, I was going to say something else then, and now it's completely gone. So, okay, it's a story about people watching television, right? Yeah, it's a satire about 
about how we uh, entertain people, ourselves, and also writers forced to write for television, and how and the mundanity and the bureaucracy of the BBC, and and how dull it is. But the problem with that is, he's made a story that feels that you really feel this bureaucracy, you really feel yeah, this yeah. dullness at times, and so you can go, well, that's very clever, but at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to when I was a kid, okay. and I think I said this to Mark a few weeks ago on the podcast, actually. Hiding in the house from the Blitz. <laughs> You're a very funny man. You pick up the Target book, and it says Carnival of Monsters. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it's a load of, well, literally, as it turns out when you get to see it in the Five Faces of Doctor Who, a load of grey-faced men standing around, <laughs> yeah. talking to each yeah. other. And you kind of feel a bit let down by the fact that you didn't get the Carnival of Monsters. No. In fact, the only real monsters you get, you get a glimpse of a Cyberman. Yeah. Do you even get a glimpse of an Ogron? Yeah, you do. Yes, you get yeah, it. yeah. And you get a glimpse of a Plesiosaur, and you get a few Drashigs. It's hardly a Carnival. But this is it. So what fans would want, and what for once, I think it would work with this, is you want the story where the Daleks and the Cybermen appear in vignettes, maybe the Ogrons. The Drashigs are quite a good special effect, but you've been teased by Daleks, Cybermen and Ogrons already. And they just, you know, yeah, you want the five yeah. doctors, you want you want the death zone. Yeah, yeah. That's the carnival of monsters. And the, yeah. And that's the atmosphere. So I don't think that's necessarily an issue with the story, but it is kind of a... So my history with it was, read the book, thought, oh dear. Mm. First saw it on television in the Five Faces of Doctor Who and thought, well, that was all right. Mm. And you appreciate it more as you get older and you understand the comedy and the politics. Mm. But, yeah, I I don't think it's the top of Robert Holmes's game Mm. because he's too close to his subject. Instead of... I think Robert Holmes works best when you throw him something like the Time Warrior, where you make him work. Yeah. Where you make him work to make it work. Yeah. Whereas this, I think it's much better than, but it reminds me a little bit of the Sunmakers and the Two Doctors. Yeah. In that this is just this sort of give Robert Holmes a blank page and let him fill he's, it himself. He's definitely better when he's restricted by it. So yeah. Something like Talons of Wen Chiang, when he's he's got a particular well, he's got literary origin to pastiche, mm. or Pyramids of Mars, or even the Ark in Space, where he's restricted by a particular set, or he just needs some sort of restriction. Yeah, and these yeah. are really clever. The script's really good. But it just doesn't have that kind of central core. And I think the same, I think the same is with Terror of the Autons, that he hasn't quite, it doesn't quite have that core, except it works in the opposite direction with that. He's mm. He's gone down the comic strip route, mm. whereas this time he's gone full-blown satire. Mm. Mm. It's like a, it is like a version of The Sunmakers, but that I think just works a lot better because of the second storyline and mm. the way the two storylines collide. It's really clever. It's, it's really smart. Oh, yeah, it is. No question. Mm. And it's very funny as well. Yeah. Particularly yeah. the bit with John Pertwee's nose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In episode four where he falls flat on his face and his nose really does flatten out. It's also, there's also a really subversive bit with Polari. So the the um, the slang, the, the kind yeah, of yeah, folk yeah. slam. Mm. But by that time, 
it's been adopted or it's been best best known for something that homosexuals use to conceal themselves because it was used in Round the Horn, it parodied in Round the Horn. Mm. Right. And so it's playing directly to John Pertwee's radio, radio, so John Pertwee knows exactly what it is. Well, but it's, yeah. it's, it's about homosexuality, not about carnival anymore. Well, oh, and the costumes. Yes, yeah. <clears throat> well, what do we think of the look of Carnival of Monsters? I mean, the the, the <laughs> stuff set on the ship is mm. beautifully done. Mm, yeah. Mm. But then you get to Inter Minor. Are there... Okay, obviously there's a reason why the functionaries are functionaries. The and why they're in, play men from Flash Gordon. Well, no, and the Inter Minorans, obviously they're grey-faced men, so they've made yeah. it literal. Yeah. Is making it literal taking it a step too far? Um, no, because it also it also makes Vorg stand out. And Vorg is the best... One of the best he stands out anyway. Every, but every time, the, the, but the actor's really good as well. So every time the actor is on screen, he's 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 got the kind of charisma that can stand up to Pertwee. Oh yeah. So so to see them together is you want more of that. But also, but it, do it, you need the costume? It works. I think I think so because it stands because it stands out because it's in contrast with the grey. The grey. Well, it is. Bogons now, but anything would have been yeah. in contrast yeah. with that. I don't know. It does to me. That's that costume in particular, but a couple of other elements. The sort of inside of the miniscope with all its giant pink buttons and stuff hmm. screams 1973. <laughs> the same way as something like Lords of Axles. Well, yeah, but the same way something like Terminus screams 1984 right. as soon as yeah. uh, Lisa Goddard comes in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, or Ark of Infinity. Yeah, Except yeah. that Ark of Infinity and Terminus, the, the 1980s-ness of them is something that's quite boring. At least with Carnival of Monsters, you've got, you know... Well, it's a different decade, some, isn't it? Yeah, some yeah, yeah, of, yeah. But yeah, it's dated. Um, interesting fact... Okay. Sort of an interesting fact, but segueing on from where you mentioned uh, John Pertwee and the radio, mm. Teniel Evans, who plays Major Daly, was the guy who suggested to John Pertwee that he should put his name forward for Doctor Who. Oh. Uh, Jenny McCracken, who plays his daughter, was on the shortlist to play Joe Grant, Ooh. and Ian Marta, of course, goes on to play Harry Sullivan. So all the three speaking characters on the ship have either a tenuous or a strong connection huh. with being cast in regular parts in Doctor Who. That's an interesting coincidence. Yes. Well, it's coincidence. <laughs> I don't know how it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, okay yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. Right, I didn't tell you this before we watched it, but thinking back now, and you think back to Major Daly's daughter, what's she called? Claire, isn't it? Mm. Instead of Joe Grant? Instead of um, Katie Manning as Joe Grant? Yeah. I don't know, because you sit there now and you think you couldn't imagine anybody else yeah. as Joe Grant but Katie Manning. Well, Joe Grant is Katie Manning. So it's sort yeah. of, mm. she, it's one of those moments. The, the most successful companions are the ones that have combined their own person, like successful yeah, doctors, yeah, yeah, yeah. the ones that have combined their own personality with the character well, and okay, created then. something with real <coughs> personality. So she may very well have. So the question isn't, would she have made a great Joe Grant, but would she have made a great companion? Oh, yeah, no reason why not. So there's an interesting sidestep in history. Mm -hmm. Presumably these three characters being together, it's not, it's it's partly also because Barry Letts is the director. 
So Jenny McCracken's. Oh, well, he would certainly he have is. seen her. Yeah, and then yeah. he he knows Ian Martyr for the future when he comes round to. Well, Ian Martyr was up for the role him. of Mike Yates. Yeah, and Mike Yates, and was um, I think if I remember rightly, he was offered it and he proved not available, and that's why mm. they went to Richard Franklin. Yeah, so mm. that's why Barry Letts mm-hmm. offered him back when Harry Sullivan came up. Yeah, so actually, it's. Very much a case of what might have been on that mm-hmm. ship. And yes, you're right. That's the reason why Barry Letts casts those people, yeah. because he knows them. Mm-hmm. And because he's directing this story, so even more than normal, he's got a kind of um, hands-on approach to the casting. Mm-hmm. But it's just such a... Well, it just strikes me as such a weird thing to be looking at all the people on that ship and thinking... Because, I mean, if Tenuel Evans suggested John Pertwee for Doctor Who, that must have been in the back of his mind that it was an interesting part to play. Mm. So potentially the three people on that ship could have been the third doctor, Mike Yates and Joe Grant. (laughs) It's just such an odd thing to see them all together on the ship. Mm. I don't know. Katie Manning then. Do you know what? Every time I I see it, it's the nodding head every time she speaks. It's like (laughs) Peter Davison with his panting every time he speaks. I think she's brilliant, but... Sometimes when she's nodding and nodding and nodding every time she opens her mouth, I just want to start tearing my hair out. <laughs> this wasn't the best story for her. She doesn't. Actually, she doesn't get a lot no, to do. She gets rescued in the end. She does a bit of business with Picklocks, but you don't really focus on it. And the rest is just and a bit at the beginning. She's not proactive. A bit at really the beginning at when you get a big piece of pertwee pomposity that she manages to puncture, where he's insistent that he's he's landed on Metropolis yeah, yeah, yeah. Three. And continues to be insistent up until the point they find chickens. Wait, he's even... And beyond. Well, even at the end, when he comes out of the miniscope, yeah. he says, so is this Metabelis 3, yeah. the famous yeah. blue planet, then? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> what a glorious line that was. Yeah. Um, okay, I have got a few notes, which I don't normally have. Okay. Um, well, one of the things that struck me as another interesting not coincidence, an interesting fact about this episode. Well, this was obviously recorded during recording for season nine. Mm. So, because this was the first time, and they only did it twice after this, and the second time was only by accident, where Barry Letts said, let's do the first story for next season at the end of this year's production block so that we've got something in the can already. Why would he have said that, necessarily? So that you can go off on holiday and have something already in the can, and that means you don't have to come back off holiday for another four weeks, but it means your holiday doesn't start till four weeks later. So I don't really... It might be It might be from, from a, a kind of an inherited fear of recording close to transmission date, inherited from tra- mm-hmm. the last Trouton series, from the War Games. But Which, still, it doesn't. Yeah. You just have scheduled the recording. It, yeah, that's um, irrational. That yeah. might have been the reason for it, but it's an irrational reason. It might be. It's. A, I don't know if there's extra post production for something like this to get the effects right, or are they all done in camera? No, this was the. They're all done in camera. This was right. the cheap story of the season. Yeah. Okay. This was the low budget one. Mm. In spite of them finding a bit of extra money to go out and spend more time on the ship, mm. I think they got. I think one of the things that happened was the ship scenes got doubled in number, more right. or less. Yeah. So they had more location than they'd planned. Mm. I think this was planned to be done initially without any location at all. It was supposed mm-hmm. to be the all-in-studio one. Yeah. 
And the odd thing about it is that it's recorded immediately after The Time Monster. And The Time Monster does feel like season nine getting tired. Yes. So it's odd that they come then and this feels a lot fresher. Mm. Although one of the potential reasons for that is that Barry Letts is directing it. Yeah. So, and he had um, an agreement with the BBC when he took on the producer's job that he would be allowed to record one story a year as director as well as producer. Mm -hmm. And because he hadn't done one in season nine, when they changed the plan to do this at the end of the season nine recording block, he said, okay, I'll have this one as my story as director. So he does this. And then, of course, next time is Planet of the Spiders. Yes. So maybe he's feeling fresh and maybe he's got a bit of extra energy which he brings to the production. Because it certainly doesn't feel... In spite of all with, that we've just said about it being a bit stagey, it certainly doesn't feel no, no. like it's come at the end of what, to that point, was the longest production block in the 1970s. Yes. It doesn't feel tired. No, no, no. <clears throat> but another interesting thing about that is, then, that that means that season nine, which doesn't have a Robert Holmes story, does have a Robert Holmes story by default, because mm. this one was... And this is not it of any particular interest, but it's just something that struck me. So if you look at the fact that this was recorded during season nine and the Time Warrior was recorded during season 10, so the first four John Pertwee series are all recorded with a Robert Holmes story, and then in the fifth one, he takes on the assistant script editor duties under Terence Dix and actually script edits two stories, Death of the Daleks and Invasion of the Dinosaurs, if I remember rightly. So actually... I think it's just slightly interesting that if you look at it from the perspective of broadcast, you've got a bit of a Robert Holmes hole in the middle of John Pertwee. But if you look at it from the perspective of recording, he's there in every season up until the one where he starts mm-hmm. work as a script editor. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just That was one of those yeah, things yeah. where I sat down and thought, oh, that's that makes more sense to me now mm-hmm. than seeing a season with no Robert Holmes in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some other interesting things. Okay. For instance, on Warriors Gate, um, Paul Joyce was roundly sanctioned for shooting upwards into the studio so that you could see the studio lights. Yeah. And yet here we are, fewer than eight years earlier, and there's Barry Letts shooting up through the miniscope and having the studio lights in the background to make it look bigger and getting away with it. Okay, I didn't notice that. That was in episode two, I think, when they first escape out of the miniscope and he Mm. does a big sort of low-angle shot of the Doctor standing on the rampart or something, Mm. and there's the studio lights behind him for all to see. Yeah. That was quite an interesting. Uh... It might might be because it's so. It's the late seventies when industrial action starts to become a big thing. It does, yeah. And the BBC becomes very kind of conscious of that. Sort yeah, of thing. So electricians are absolutely not set dressers, so so anything electrical <clears throat> being used as set is, is sort of such a small amount of time in between the two, isn't yeah. it? For yeah. it to change so radically yeah. that something like that, you could do it mm. in 1973, and then in 1981, no, no, no. Yes, yeah. Um, The boxing. Yes. And the bit where Ian Martyr <laughs> shoots at the Doctor as well. So do we think, what I was a bit confused about is that they've increased the aggression within the miniscope. Mm. Has that included Pertwee? 
the the doctor because he does he yes. reacts very and quickly I can't, to it. I can't yeah. tell whether it's just the third doctor doing what the third doctor does and you know, no Queen's I think Google. he's reacting I think because no, I'm not on, sure mm, but he stops before the rest ambiguous. of them do doesn't he yeah it's a bit ambiguous yeah but I like that I'm, I'm just no, thinking later on when they're all starting to get you know fatigued from yes. the miniscope closing down the doctor. He gets fatigued then. Yeah, 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 exactly the same as all the other. But I don't know at that point whether the Doctor's ever been established as having a... Well, I think well, that's, after the that's more the atmosphere and the miniscope slowly decaying. Mm. Whereas the the aggression thing, it's never quite said how the, ingre- the aggression is I suppose is I'm increased. thinking, does the writer think of him as being pretty much human? Yes. Or not? Well, the thing is, they all stay aggressive after the boxing bit's over, mm-hmm. whereas he doesn't. Yeah. So no, no. you've got to assume he's just reacting to what they're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought, I, I, watching that though, I thought it was all a bit, oh, hang on. This is all getting a bit sort of 15 certificate sort of thing. Right. Do you know what I mean? In terms of, not in terms of what you actually saw, but in terms of the intent. Well, normally, normally, put we. <laughs> Normally, Pertwee does judo. Well, so yeah. there's an awful lot of throwing over the shoulder bloodlessly. Mm. <laughs> to actually box bare-fisted is slightly more contacty. It's Well, it's the difference physical. between um, what Barry Letts got in trouble for in Terror of the Autons and what mm. he never did afterwards, which was tearing the policeman's face off. And Yeah. Or the scissors in Edge of Destruction. Or the seeds, in, most of the things in the Seeds of Doom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Doctor twisting the, guy, the guy's neck. Which is possibly the most dangerous, irresponsible, outrageous moment in Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I still don't understand what Tom Baker does to the actor. Is he just sort of twists him and he kind of like paralyzes him slightly? Because that, that is really bad for you to do that yeah. with someone's neck. Oh, but do you mean literally what he physically does? Well, well, well not, presumably the actor not turns to, his not head. Not to the actor, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, to the character, I mean, no, in, yeah, in the no. fiction, there's a kind of a he sort of cricks. Well, it's a bit like um, Mr. Spock's the thing on the shoulder. Yeah, 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 yeah. Except for school children doing that to each other. Well, yeah, well, isn't gonna, well, yeah no. well, that's what I was thinking watching this. Is like how many kids are gonna sort of wind up in the playground on Monday punching yeah, yeah, <laughs> daylights out of yeah. each other. Taken aback when the doctor gets punched in the stomach. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. all a bit kind of... Yeah, he's treading a bit close to that line of mm-hmm. imitable things. But it's also played for laughs as well. There's a kind of... Uh, with Pertwee doing his kind of Queensbury rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Old-fashioned. It's just ridiculous as well so I mean, it's, it doesn't stop kids from imitating it but it's no it's still quite a funny thing to oh it's a funny scene yeah but it was just the the, the thing that struck me about it was it's you mm. know the yeah. potential for imitation so there is um and this is so robert holmes where he can't help people moan about how much Stephen Moffat messes with the Doctor Who mythos. But here's Robert Holmes again. He can't help himself. When it, they get onto the conversation of the miniscopes and the Doctor says, oh yes, it was me who got them banned in the first yeah. place. Mm. You know, you me, do, I got the Time Lords to yeah. get them banned. You do, you do mentally go back over what you know about the Doctor at that point and think, when did you do this? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Was it when 
you were running away from the Time Lords and they didn't know where you were? Was it sometime during your trial? Maybe he sort of nipped off and banged them? Or was it before? Well, presumably it was before he even left there in the first place. If he's got the Time Lords to do it for him, it doesn't make any sense. But then Robert Holmes never looks at the history of Doctor Who when he's throwing his continuity bits in. He just makes it up as he goes along. No. And actually, that's I like the fact... I mean, so it's not about... So for Robert Holmes, the continuity isn't about the Time Lords, it's about the Doctor. So it's yeah, about yeah, the, yeah. the fact that the Doctor is a is a universal campaigner for, mm. for these things. And it's the same in Deadly Assassin. It's not about Time Lord society. It's about the Doctor's, doctor's place, place in yeah. Time Lord society and the reason why he left in the first place. So it's all about... Robert Holmes knows it's about character and not about... Continuity. Continuity, which is what it should be. And I think Stephen Moffat's got the same... Approach, same thing because yeah. every time he blatantly brings something back from the past it's never about look at this thing I've brought back from the past it's look at how Peter Capaldi's doctor reacts to this thing I've brought back from the past and how it shapes mm. him and how it develops his character Absolutely. whereas someone like Eric say with something like Attack of the Cybermen is look at this thing from the past and look at this thing from the, or and look at how we can correct these things or from Earth, the past or Earthshock is a, is about the Time Lords are just used as a kind of a, you know... Well, that's sort of just look at the past. Yeah, yeah. Basically. But it did strike me as just another example, because Robert Holmes is so fated by people who tend to sort of ignore the fact that he does this stuff, which mm. you really wouldn't expect him to be fated for, because he does, he absolutely just completely runs rampant over the continuity at times yeah. in Doctor yeah. Who. And it just struck me that here we are again with another story where you don't even think it's going to be... Like Deadly Assassin, we all know there's Time Lord stuff in there. And even the Brain of Morbius, we all know it starts with that scene with um, you know the Doctor railing at the Time Lord, sending him on another mission, mm. which of course hasn't happened for about four years or five years or something, let alone to be so constant that he'd be railing at it. And yet here you've got a story which you wouldn't have expected there to be any sort of relevance to Time Lords at all, and yet here he is throwing in a plot point, because it's more than just a mention, it's a plot point that the yeah. miniscopes are banned, and the doctor was responsible for getting them banned. Yeah. So it's quite fundamental to mm. the to the story. I wonder if, if Robert Holmes is sort of obviously he's revered now partly because of the length of time there's been since <clears throat> since he was making these things. So his subversions of continuity, his playful use of continuity, has, has now become, become the continuity, continuity. Yeah. But also partly seasons thirteen and fourteen are unassailable, like, golden ages of the series. And a lot of that is assigned to Robert Holmes. A lot of that is seen as Robert Holmes's masterwork. And I think that's that's the kind of the the big insulation. Because The Deadly Assassin wasn't viewed favourably by everybody at the time. No, no, no. Famously. But now it would be extraordinary to hear somebody criticising it in the same way. I'd love to have some kind of record of what... (laughs) <laughs> a fandom, because obviously a fandom didn't really exist, would have thought even of Genesis of the Daleks, because mm. Genesis of the Daleks absolutely rides roughshod over continuity. Yeah, and I could imagine people being up in arms about that. Yeah. Except, of course, the Dwarves and its newspaper didn't start for another year or so afterwards yeah. or whatever. So, you, 
You know, you don't have the Celestial Toy Room review of Genesis of the Daleks to refer back to. You'd have to speak to Ian Levine, because he'd remember that. Oh, yeah, I mean, seriously, he'd remember Genesis of the Daleks, and he'd remember the Dalek history beforehand. He would be a massive fan by that. I'd imagine with Genesis of the Daleks... But Ian Levine's actually a lot more accepting of that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember during... Series 8 with Peter Capaldi with all mm. that stuff that people were moaning about with what Moffat was doing mm. and Ian Levine was absolutely lapping it up. Yeah, yeah. But Jan Vincent Rudsky is the interesting one, the mm. guy who wrote that review of Deadly Assassin. Yeah. I'd what love to ask him. The magic really. of Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, didn't you I notice mean, I it was s- on its way out with Brain and Morbius and Genesis of the Daleks? I suspect <laughs> I've got an instinct, my instinct tells me he'd be happy with Genesis of the Daleks because it's rewriting what's happened before. But, but not overwhelming. But it's not it. subverting it. It's it's the Daleks aren't changing character. I think his problem with Deadly Assassin was Is that the time lords have the changed. The time lords have changed, yeah. Mm. And it's the same problem I have with Ark of Infinity. They changed the Time Lords, but for Ark of, with Ark of Infinity, they've made the Time Lords more boring, which is a wrong direction. With Deadly Assassin, it just makes them more manipulative, more mm. kind of sinister. More and yeah, that's a double good, dealing. That's, that's sort of. a good direction because it adds drama. Well, yeah, it adds textuality. So, speaking of... the subject. Well, speaking of textuality, Mm. the the similarities between this and Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, because this is basically a prototype for what Stephen Moffat's been doing for the last five years. Mm. The sort of, the multiple locations thing, the ship and Interminer, is the girl in the fireplace. Yeah. And the, the... the way the two of them connect, the way this story talks about how television works mm-hmm. is the way Stephen Moffat talks about how Doctor Who works in a lot of his stories. And and you brought this up while we were watching it about the SS Bernice mm. and about how it would have to be still missing at the end so there'd have to be fall another disaster. Yeah. But and this and I actually asked at the end of the story if there was a, a scene that had been deleted, that was in the deleted scenes at the end. Maybe I should have looked this up to find out whether there ever was. Presumably, at the end of that story, there should be a scene where Joe Grant says to the Doctor, when we arrived here, this was a famous mystery like the Marie Celeste. <laughs> yeah. Except she's never heard of this mystery. Only mm. the Doctor has. And I think what happens at the end of the story is time changes yeah. so that the Bernice is no longer a mystery. Mm-hmm. So that the Benice never did go missing yeah. because everything's been put back into place. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's a fictional ship rather than setting it on yeah. the actual yeah, 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 yeah. Marie Celeste, which yeah. would have been just as easy to do. And in the series, there's four weeks since that that scene. <laughs> so it wouldn't stand out. It's only when you watch it on DVD yeah, and you yeah, suddenly yeah. think, actually, there's but, a disconnect. But, but generally speaking, if a story starts like that, even in that day and age, there'd be a scene at the end of the story mm. to address it. Mm. Like in Day of the Daleks, it's only in a novelisation because they never actually filmed the second scene at the end. In Day of the Daleks, do you remember at the start, there's that bit where they meet their future selves at the yes. TARDIS yeah, console. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the story, there was supposed to be a scene where they meet their past selves at right. the TARDIS console, yeah. except they ran out of studio time and never got it filmed. Right. But yeah. that was supposed to be there. It's the old series version of the, the Duck Pond, basically. It is basically the old yeah. series version of the Duck Pond, and I just wondered if this story originally had something in it which addressed that. Because mm. the way it's addressed so ostentatiously at the start, here is another mystery like the Marie Celeste. Yeah. This ship went missing. 
as soon yeah. as the Doctor finds out what the ship's called, mm-hmm. you think that that is then going to be addressed at the end. And the Doctor says, no time will have rewritten itself now and this ship will never have gone missing. Mm. I don't know, that just struck me as uh, something that I was expecting and didn't get. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm basically out of my notes and I don't know, is there anything else we've not no, I mentioned? Really? I, mean, I feel a bit better. I feel that now... No, you've mentioned the, the Stephen Moffat thing. I think it's the sort of idea that they do better now than they did then. I think it's just the direction that let it down for me. And it's, but but it's it's incredibly wordy though, isn't it? Mm. You know, I do Which wonder is, what Julian yeah. made made of it at the time. I mean, I yeah, I think it. I think it's not for kids. It's probably I think I didn't like it when I first saw it. I liked it more when I watched it. Like mm. a decade or more ago, mm. and I might be liking it less now because I'm preferring, you know, I want something with a bit more atmosphere, with a bit more lively direction. Mm. I tell you what is for kids in this, and I'm not talking about the monsters. Is the fact that the doctor's shrunk and trapped inside a machine? Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. 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 But you don't. You only get a few occasions throughout the entire four episodes where that becomes like a thing. Mm. So even after he's come out and he goes back in to try and rescue Joe, is this is the bit where in something like The Invisible Enemy, where they go inside the Doctor's head, they spend a whole episode there. Yeah. In The Deadly Assassin, where they go into the Matrix, they spend a whole episode there. Mm. In this, when the Doctor gets back into the miniscope to rescue Joe, what you really need then is all the stuff that was in the miniscope from episode two in episode four, where he's desperately trying to rescue her. But as it turns out, he goes in, she pokes her head out of the hole and says, Doctor, are you there? And he (laughs) says, yes. And it's all over and done with in two minutes. The whole five doctors thing, isn't you? We're running around corridors, getting away from Daleks, sliding around this corner. That should have been the peril in episode four. Mm. And that's what kids would have latched onto. The Doctor's Mm. tiny and trapped inside a machine. Episode four, which is the one we watched tonight, wasn't the best episode four I've ever seen. It was seen. very it was slow. Like, it, it was like an episode three in yeah, a four-part story because it had a lot of talking and the only action in it were the Drashes escape mm. and someone else kills them whilst the Doctor's unconscious on his nose. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's not that's not a dramatic Doctor Who story ending. That's a kind of, a, but what a kind it of is, an episode three. There's very well, little urgency from... Yeah. But what it is, again, Who. is... Robert Holmes sending up the way a Doctor Who story functions. Yeah. So he and there's even dialogue at the end of that episode. Mm. I can't remember what it was, but there's even a line where somebody points out something along the lines of how the dr- drama has been punched out of it or yeah. something. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Mm. He knows what he's doing, and he's putting the lines in the characters' yeah. mouths to illustrate that he knows what he's doing. But and I've said this about Vengeance on Varos. Philip Martin makes a story that sends up the way people react to violence and is supposed to be anti-violence, yeah. but it's so full of violence, it's like having your cake and eating it. Yeah. The trouble here is Robert Holmes can tell you he knows what he's doing as many times as he likes, but he's still doing it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, yes, the drama sort of dissipates at the end rather than ramping up. Mm. And as far as children viewers are concerned, yeah, apart from the appearance of the Drashigs, that last episode doesn't have that big crescendo mm. of excitement and adventure. So and they were so of... proud of the Drashigs. Every, every yeah, every effing interview with 
Mm. Um, Barry Letts, he'd talk about the drashings. And I still don't quite know. I think it's because it's his story. I like the design. They're all right, yeah. They're not. Mm. They're, they're probably better than the Scarrison. <laughs> they're better than Kroll. They're a good design. They're better than the dinosaurs, an invasion of the dinosaurs. They're but really they don't thing. have a good story or a yeah. strong story wrapped around it. They mm. have this kind of... The really odd thing about the design was that one scene in episode three, I think, Mm. towards the start of episode three, where you see the Drashig actually crawling around on the Mm. marsh, and you see it's sort of like a pink snake sort of thing. Yeah. It's got this kind of almost centipede body, Mm. but without any legs, obviously. So so Drashig is essentially a snake with a fox's head. Yes, which varies in size depending on what location they're at so when they're in the whole yeah, yeah. ship they seem to be much much smaller than yeah, the marsh yeah. and yeah which is okay well but they're not they're not worthy of repeating in every documentary throughout the history they're not sort of like the classic doctor <laughs> who monster that you they're go not. back to no they're just in an episode directed by barry letts to be honest none of the ones that have been bigger than you know humans ever really have been have they mm. crawl no. Yeah. Creature from the Pit. No. Yeah. Dinosaurs and Invasion of the Dinosaurs. I mean, as good as that story is, but the dinosaurs, no. The big monsters in Doctor Who have never worked. The no. Merker. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Scarrison comes close, just not that. The, the, it's not the in animation, the last episode. really, I guess. But the Scarrison across the moor worked for me. The Scarrison popping his head up above the bridge didn't work for me. That was just like the Plesiosaurus in this. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. No, the Scarrison didn't on the moor even. The Scarrison on the moor was better, but it still left yeah. a lot to be desired. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we give it a mark. Okay. That's what we've been doing. Back. Go on, then you go first. A seven out of ten. Okay. Simon, I'll give it eight. Really? Yeah, because because I enjoy it. I know it's flawed, but you know, I, I in spite of that, I really enjoy it because there's elements in there that I really kind of appreciate and see I thought you were going to be higher oh really yeah I was oh gonna... yeah no but you know me I like my I like my 8 out of 10s more than my 9s and 10s yeah see I'm going to give it a 9 but that's a low 9 whereas I'm guessing mm. yours was a high 8 yeah so we're yeah. probably about in the same place it's one of those ones where for me it's one of those ones where just a little bit more work on it mm. could have made it truly fantastic yeah if you say if that had been shifted on later in in the early part of series 10, then it might have made all the difference. A bit, bit more padding around there, you know, things like the Drashigs, and that, like you say, there's very little to them, so a bit more padding yeah. around what makes them so mm. bloody frightening. Right, a couple of other orders of business. Didn't say it last week, because I wasn't sure whether it was going to be ready in time, but our new theme tune, again, is by that trooper, Wesley Smith. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't know if he listens... I don't know if he just does our themes and doesn't listen. <laughs> but if he does listen, I just want to say to him, over something that's coming up later this summer, just good luck and I hope it works out. Mm-hmm. So, and the other thing is, a new podcast by me and Rob Irwin of the Doctor Who show, Ooh. which you two are aware of now. Mm-hmm. I've heard, I've heard rumours. Well, the weird thing is, because we've, because we recorded this episode like a fortnight after the last one we recorded because of the way things have worked out, this new podcast has actually gone from inception to delivery in the meantime. So it's actually out. 
So it's the You and Who Talking podcast. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people who are listening to this will know about the You and Who books, which you've both written for, yeah. and which are people telling stories, not necessarily about Doctor Who either, because now there's like a Blake 7 one mm. and just a British telefantasy one, but people talking not about the thing that they watched, but about the way they watched that thing and the impact that watching that thing has had on their lives. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I don't need to say anymore because you can listen to the podcast to find out. Those books were for charity. There are a bunch of essays from a load of different authors, each talking uh, along a broadly similar theme, but bringing different things to all the essays. And somebody suggested to me years ago that I should do an audio book of it where I get everybody to read their essays. Mm. And... My answer to that was, it's a really nice idea, but the logistics of that would just be ridiculous. And then two weeks ago, Rob Irwin came to me from the Doctor Who show, the Australian podcast. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, we've split our feed up now. They used to, the Doctor Who show used to be like a two and a half hour podcast, yeah. a magazine podcast with all these different segments. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, instead of putting them all together into one big two and a half hour podcast, what they do is just have a feed and put all the segments out individually. And he said to me, I'd quite like to put out, as one of those segments, a You and Who style podcast, doing the You and Who books. Yeah, yeah. And I just, well, as soon as he said that, I thought, well, that's that—that's an actual way you can do that audiobook mm-hmm. version without having to worry about the logistics. Mm-hmm. So there it was. I just said yes instantly. And now, the, well, as this is being recorded, the first episode, in which I read two essays because I figured it had to be me to start it off, is out. As this podcast goes out, the second episode, in which Rob does two of his, is out as well. And as we speak, I've already got... Or I, me and Rob, because it's his idea, so he's the one who should take the credit. We've already got five other people have sent us readings already. So what we're hoping to do is sort of put out a 15, 20-minute podcast once a week with either, depending on the length of them, two essays by two different people or one longer one by somebody else. And hopefully at some point in the not-too-distant future, that'll include the two of you. Okay. Mm. <clears throat> so are they going out in any particular order? No, pretty random, really. Want to make it a, you know, give it as much Lucky variety day. as yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah. so... The way things stand, Lee might be on episode three. Mm. And Mark sent something in as well. Oh. But yeah, there's we've already had one from America, because obviously that's another thing we'd like to get, ones mm. from around the world as mm. possible. Mm. So we've already got one from America, which will probably be, probably be on episode four, I guess. Maybe on episode three, who knows. Cool. But yeah, so it's just a nice thing. It's like a little sort of book at bedtime kind of thing, because mm. it's an audio reading as opposed to a conversation. Mm. But they're short... And it's just like a nice podcast where you get a bit of a sort of intimate journey into somebody's mind. Slightly Mm. more intimate than you get on the page because you actually get the author reading it. Mm. So you get them emphasising the bits that are important to them, as it Mm. were. Um, I do have lots of things that I haven't reviewed since the last time I did reviews. I don't think I should go through all of them, but there are a few things worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. The... H.G. Wells series that Big Finish are doing. Right. I've only heard The First Men in the Moon, because that was the one I had to review, but that was just a stonkingly good version of The First Men in the Moon. Great fun. Mm -hmm. Not that they send it up, 
but that they have fun with it that's in keeping with the tone of H.G. Wells. Yes. So they, um, I don't know, it's just, I guess, two and a quarter hours and it's just extremely entertaining. And I would say if you are remotely interested in sort of, well, it's not an audiobook, it's obviously a play, mm. but if you're remotely interested in sort of sci-fi and where sci-fi has come from, because this is sort of pre-sci-fi being a thing, yeah, it's a great story anyway. Okay. And it knows what the strengths and weaknesses of the story are. Mm. So it allows the weaknesses to sort of be weaknesses and by virtue of doing that sort of turns them into strengths, if you know what I mean. Yes. Um, <clears throat> do you know the Myth Makers from mm-hmm. Real Time? Mm-hmm. He has Keith Barnfather, who's behind those, because obviously he's got this great big back catalogue of interviews he's conducted over the years. He has started to collect them together. Mm-hmm. So that you can now buy sort of mini collections of several interviews quite cheap of the as well. Aren't they? well, they're not hugely expensive. Well, the MythMakers DVDs are, I think, a tenner, and you either get two shorter interviews or one slightly longer one for your tenner. Right. This collection's got five interviews on yeah. it, and although the RRP is probably twenty, you can get it for like fifteen. Yeah. yeah. So actually, you're getting. 30 quid's worth of interviews for 15 quid. So yeah. basically it's about half what you I'm tempted, I'm tempted by... So yeah. you can say what it is, I suppose. Well, the first one that they've put out is the John Pertwee yeah. years. Yeah, Which is kind of a shame it sticks exclusively to the actors. Right. But mm. having said that, then that kind of becomes a theme of the set. Mm. So, so presumably who, at some point... So who's it got? It's got Casey John Pertwee. Oh, it has got John Pertwee. Yeah, it's okay. got John Pertwee and Katie Manning on the first disc... Yeah. And Caroline John. Okay, okay. So you've got those three on the first disc, yeah. and then the second disc is unit staff, so you've got Richard Franklin, yes. John Levine, and Nicholas Courtney. Okay. So it's a really nice set. That's good. Yeah, yeah. 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 Especially for like 15 quid, mm-hmm. yeah. considering they were like a tenner each originally. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely recommended. I mean, some of the interviews vary in quality, because some yeah. of the early myth makers they put out, they tried to engender interest by doing the interviews on location mm, and mm. I don't know if you've ever seen the Mary Town one you'll know exactly what I I've mean. I've only seen the Tom Baker one which All is right. probably the the more famous one where he's wandering around with a parrot on his head and going around graves, <laughs> graveyards and talking to himself. That's quite good. I is remember that, that the myth makers? Because I can't remember whether that was or not. I, I thought it was. It might be. I can't I can't remember. I have most of the Myth Makers at home, but a lot of them came out years ago, so I can't remember. The next set that's up, anyway, is the Patrick Troughton one, I think, if I remember rightly. So I'm guessing that will be mostly the companions of Patrick Troughton. Real time. Oh, who on earth is Don Baker? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure. not necessarily sure. Myth Makers. No, it's not a Myth Makers, no. but it's sort of... Same idea. Yeah, as it's real time... That's him with a parrot on his head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, as it's and real time... Terrifying front cover. <laughs> is that Circle of Book Tower looking at the haircut? Oh, yes. my God. This is radio worthy of... Sorry. <laughs> as they're all real time, I'm not sure if... Because these collections aren't being put out as part of the Mythmakers series, so it's possible that you'll have things like that on there as well as Mythmakers interviews. Yes. So presumably when the Tom Baker mm. collection comes out, there's a good chance that'll be on it. Yeah. Because I think the Patrick Troughton one is next up, and I don't think there's a Patrick Troughton Mythmaker. 
but they did license some stuff from America. So there's oh, a Patrick Troughton interview. Cool. So I don't know whether that's on the set, but it'd be interesting to see whether it yeah. is. Mm-hmm. And if it is, that opens the doors for them to put other things on there as well as the actual Mythmakers interviews. Yeah. yeah. You can have the, the, the one William Hartnell interview of him backstage at a yeah, <laughs> at pantomime. No, I think this, this is already stuff that they've licensed okay, elsewhere. Fine. That's already gone out on the BBC, you yeah. see, so okay. I don't think they'd get that. Um, a few films as well. I mean, Fantastic Beasts. What did I've you, think of, what did you of think of Fantastic Beasts? I, I respected it a lot more than I liked it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. Are you a Harry Potter person? No, I'm not. Okay, okay. And I thought, actually, once you got back beyond the surface trappings, which is that it's in New York, yes. and it's actually in 1924 rather than being contemporary, but just looking like it's in 1924. Mm. And, of course, it's different characters. Yeah. But I thought once you got past the surface trappings, it was repeating a lot of the same things. I think, the surf, for me, the surface trappings, particularly in... Because there are going to be lots of sequels to this. Yeah, yeah, imagine. yeah. And I'm hoping that the sequels are going to go through history and start... I'm hoping they're going to lead to the Second World War because that seems to be a natural well, it's place possible, to lead possible, because there's only a 15-year... Yeah, and the, the idea of the Second World War played out with these, with the kind of the undercover wizard side mm. and the the real side. So this is what... This Have is you what seen Fantastic really Beasts? Yeah, yeah. And this it's... is the impression I got was... Was it was very good at this kind of tension between the real world and the the undercover wizard world. That's what it always plays with. But when but it you doesn't get include like a lot of the real world in it, does it? No. And that's the issue: is that if these continue in the same vein, even if they do go up as far as the Second World War, yeah, chances are it'll be deep background. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, and to me, and this is what I thought the issue with it because it's brilliantly well made. Mm-hmm. And it's exceptionally entertaining. You can't moan yeah. with any of those things. Yeah. But it just kind of didn't feel fulfilling because yeah. it because I wanted if there was going to be a new series, I wanted it to be doing something new. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it doesn't really do Touch anything new. Different, different, yeah. No. It Eddie just goes to a different mm-hmm. country and yeah. basically does Eddie Redmayne plays a brilliant doctor though. He is. Oh, I don't know. I found him really irritating. That could be a doctor. Well, yeah, yeah, still a potential doctor. I mean, he is channeling Matt Smith in in sort of movement and and look and gesture. Yeah, he is, but he takes it to a place where Matt Smith even didn't go with it. And I think, and I think the issue with that is because Matt Smith would do various things, but he would do other things in between, and so all those things became different aspects. Yeah. Whereas with the Eddie Redmayne character, it's almost like that thing is his character. Yeah. So that could, unless they um, ease back on that considerably, if they do another seven films with him doing that, by the Mm. end of it, you'll just. I, th- I think he'll be changed. Shovel to his edge. <laughs> but I think he'll be changed by it because I think the one thing J.K. Rowling can do is change, is, is create a series that actually evolves and matures through, that's, through again, the stories the and the characters change. Is that in Harry Potter they start as ten-year-olds or whatever yeah. and end up as seventeen-year-olds? Yeah, and so that's where the change comes from yeah. from the progression of their adolescence. Whereas mm-hmm. with Eddie Redmayne starting as I would guess he's probably about 24, the character, because he's 
yeah. not too long out of university, but long enough to have had a couple of jobs, I think. But I think in in this case, because the the time it's set is is as you say, fifteen years before the war. So what you're going to get is a, the storyline is going to mature, not because the characters are going to, going to grow older, but because of what the 1930s are going to happen. And that's a time when the whole world matures to the point of the Second World War. And I think that's, well, that's going to be... Uses that. that's going to, That's what I'd like to see. That's, the, yeah, yeah. that's what... If, if it goes down that path, I'd, I'd quite like it. And I'd be surprised... Well, it'd be if interesting to start as, as to whether the wizarding world gets involved. Yes, Isn't it? That's yeah, the, yeah, that's yeah. the big question. Yeah, and she's very good. Jackie Rowling's very good at mm. sort of political allegories, and really because she did the whole Blair thing in Harry Potter, and this is her opportunity to to do a historical version of that, and I think that's quite exciting. Well, to be fair, she could just do the Trump thing with Hitler. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> if she chooses to go, yeah. well, let's hope so. The, because spoil- this might be a spoiler. Move on. Is it a spoiler to say that Johnny Depp appears in the end? Well, oh, I think well, it is for me now. Oh, I'm sorry. Have you not seen it? No. Oh, to be honest, it's I'm one gutted, of those... Yeah, well, I'm gutted, really, because I <laughs> used to read the books before the films came out and all that stuff. I was well well into it. And then I met my wife, and we said, we'll, we'll sit down and watch them all, because she hadn't seen any of them. Yes. And then we never have. So I, there's, I've still got about two, two <laughs> Harry Potter to, films to watch. To be honest, to say that Johnny Depp is in it at the end isn't really a story spoiler. Is it fact it's, Johnny no. Depp? Um, well, yes. he's playing. He's playing. It is. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's playing Mordecai in it. If you've ever heard of Mordecai, where he plays this yeah. kind of louche antique dealer, right. art expert, rather than Johnny Depp being sinister, and he really needs to be sinister at the end, but he actually doesn't well, he quite hit three seconds in one line. Doesn't yeah, he? So. but he's set up as the main villain. He's basically and... playing in this the part that um, Ray Fiennes plays in the Harry Potters. Right. Essentially, yeah. well, he's set yeah. up to be that sort of character yeah. in the story, and that's not really a su- surprise either. That there's going to be a big bad through the series. No, no. But, so he just turns yeah. up at the end of this and sort of yeah. winks at camera and says, "It's going to be me, mm-hmm. probably slightly thinner." Yeah. What I was looking forward to, obviously, not as having not seen it, is the idea that it seems to be quite slick. As far as the magicians concerned, they seem to know what they're doing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah, got all the. Yeah. They're kind of, I suppose you call it tech, haven't you? Well, they're yeah, all established. So, yeah. yeah. And actually, the magic in this goes way further than mm-hmm. the sort of baseline magic in Harry Potter. Yeah. It's a bit like the Stormtrooper situation in um, Star Wars, yeah. where the prequels yeah. have got these robots, really mm. slick robots. Oh, yeah. And then oh, you get to Star Wars. Oh, and two flying around. Yeah. 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 With this, some of the stuff they're doing with magic is just like, you yeah. know. And also the special effects in it are just on the verge of being impossible to follow because it's a sort of an inception thing. The, the whole world is kind of shifting around them. Mm-hmm. But he just manages, I think, I sort of the cinema, you just manage to keep track of what this world is doing. And I think that's probably, oh, it's the, easier that's probably the best quality of a director for that. Oh, for yes, that, a great to, so you can keep track of where where you are in the frame, even though there are walls dissolving and things shifting around and mm. characters going around. Well, it's like very that. dark city. Have yeah. you ever seen Dark City? Yeah, because there's a twist at the end of this that is straight out of Dark City, which I shan't spoil then. Mm. But well, what happens to one of the characters in this is exactly what happens in Dark City at the right. end. Well, in yeah. fact, throughout, but most notably at the end. Mm. So. I figure she's definitely seen Dark City as much as it's Inception. Well, I guess Inception comes out of Dark City. Yeah. 
Dark City was a flop, but it's such a good film. But it has an irritating conceit in the direction, mm. which actually um, Fantastic Beasts has as well. Mm. In Dark City, they never hold a shot for more than two seconds. Right. So even in cases <laughs> where characters are talking to each other in dialogue, mm. you never get a shot for more than two seconds. I don't know. They must have sat down and said that at the start of the film because even in a 30-second dialogue scene, you'll still get a cut every two seconds throughout the entire film. It's not as irritating as it sounds. No. But it is slightly irritating. And in Fantastic Beasts, I don't know whether it's because David Yates and J.K. Rowling are now so um, familiar with each other. Mm. But because she's written this as a script instead of somebody else adapting as a script from her book and she knows what he does and because he as a director knows what he's expecting to get from her, there's a feeling when you go into the film, I don't know whether you got this as well, I got the feeling for at least the first hour and it never really went away that they're just kind of gliding through it. It never yeah, stopped. Yeah. It never established anything. It just went bash, 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 bash all the way through. Yeah. And all the storylines, you get introduced to characters, but it felt like nobody was being introduced. Mm. It mm. was almost like you were expected to um, pick up the slack and just run with what they were giving you. Mm. So it just... It kind it's, of felt like it didn't take its time. It's taking the the idea of it being a roller coaster one step too far. Yeah, being a roller coaster means it should be emotionally roller it should coaster be slow, but actually and fast. But actually, yeah. in this film, the camera and the camera does swoop through scenes, and that's yeah, what yeah. I mean about the special effects. The special effects are quite sophisticated because they're happening as the camera is moving, which you can do with CGI, but. The difficulty with that is, and you get it with Marvel fight sequences, the camera is just all over the place. Well, sure, this is the big thing the Phantom Menace was guilty of, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's, yeah. I got the impression that the entire city was CGI. I, mm. It looked to me, I couldn't swear to it, but it looked to me like they didn't do any location in New York at all. I thought they in Glasgow, I think. Yeah, it looked, I mean, basically, if they were standing on a street, three feet around them on either side was real and beyond yeah. that was CGI from mm. what I could tell looking yeah. at it. Yeah. And it's very convincing yeah. and there's obviously a lot of money gone into it but just the way the camera starts moving and they're, if they're recreating 1924 New York the way the camera's moving around it's but, not real. But, mm. but again David Yates in the original series starts out doing that but by the time he gets to the final Harry Potter films there's it's a just lot more mental. But no, there's a lot more real. There's like shots, lingering shots of them in the forest and in woods. Oh, I so see it's what you mean. Yeah, grounded. Yeah, yeah. And as you get closer through time, maybe reality will start to encroach. Maybe this is the fantastical side, the mm. the, the kind of the, the Garden of Eden bit. Mm. And as the series progresses, it gets darker and darker. Maybe. This is what I'd like to see. Yeah, yeah. And reality gets more real. I think because in... at some point, if you do go to the Second World War, which I, I really think they were going to, you have to tackle the Nazis. And you can't, you can't do that without having some sort of nod to reality, I think. I, I yes. definitely think you're talking more about what you'd like to see than well, what you expect yes, to see. Yeah, but but I'd, be <laughs> I'd be surprised if that doesn't, that doesn't happen. All right. Today, I, yesterday, I watched Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is coming out on Blu ray. And I know fans of that film have been clamouring for a Blu-ray. 
on account of well, you know what the conceit is, right? Steve Martin's mm-hmm. in a black and white hardball detective thriller yeah. made in the eighties. That's a parody of the stories from the forties, and it actually includes scenes from the forties that that's he's right. been yep. put into. So he's interacting with people like Lana Turner and Humphrey Bogart, mm. and oh, it's years since I've seen it. And I last time I watched it, I was like, "Well, I can see what they're doing, and I respect them for that." But my God, it's a hell of a strange film because they can't make a story out of the clips they've got. So the entire film is just one long non sequitur. Mm. And it's very entertaining to watch. Have you ever seen it, Matt? No. Right. It's very entertaining to watch. Mm. Or rather, it it balances entertaining and irritating in equal measure. Right. Okay. It's really childish. Mm. I mean, have you seen it, Matt? Uh, It's been a long time. It starts off off with a scene where... um, the uh, the dame comes into the private investigator's office and um, sees a picture of her father who's just died and that's the reason why she's come there. So I'm not sure why seeing a picture of her father should cause this reaction considering that that is the reason why she's come there, but she faints. And so what Steve Martin does is he lays her down on the couch and starts fondling her breasts. That's the level of humour in this film. Right. <laughs> And then you get lots and lots and lots of clips of people like um, Cary Grant and, like I said, Humphrey Bogart, Bette Davis. And because of the nature of the clips that they've been able to source or have found, trying to make a story out of it is just impossible. Mm. So it is just filmed with the most contrived nonsense in order to generate some kind of story out of this stuff. They kind of get a story... And by the end of the film, they've kind of resolved that story. But there are so many diversions. Just, oh, let's have him travelling out into the countryside on a train so we can use this clip of Cary Grant. This is what I remember. And... I seem to remember the central characters doing all of the work and, and, like you say, put them into situations so they could use those particular clips. <laughs> and then the that. situations come to nothing. So yeah, everything, yeah. hardly anything he does in the entire film gets resolved. Yeah, it's a strange... You've got to respect it for what it does, especially as it's pre-computer. So that, mm. you know... But it is just reverse shots. There's no... There's only one shot in the entire film where he's actually in the frame with one of these characters. Mm. So it's it's one of those ideas that sounds like a clever idea and is a lot less clever in execution, but it's still fun to watch just because of what the idea is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a bunch of other stuff I've seen. Um, I tell you what, very briefly, I'll recommend a film called The Chamber, which is a cheap British film made in Wales. Mm-hmm. It's set in a submarine. It's basically four actors in a submarine. Um, and the script is okay. It's a reasonable script. The idea is half decent. Mm-hmm. It perhaps, because it's fairly cheap and because of the nature of these things, doesn't go into the idea as much as you might like. But the dialogue and the acting, the guys directed it and the script, are so good that actually you don't care. And by the time you're about halfway through the film, you're really involved with the characters. So I would say this guy, give him a script that's a bit more expansive and a budget that can pay for it. This guy's going to be one to watch. Mm -hmm. And it's about six weeks since I reviewed that, so I can't remember his name. But it's called The Chamber, and it's worth looking up. Um, I don't know. I guess maybe the last thing I'll talk about is The Blue Lagoon. 
because that's coming out on Blu-ray. And, well, Simon and I had a conversation about this in private. It is child pornography legitimised. The story itself, The Blue Lagoon, comes mm. from a novel that came out in 1906 or 8, mm. that even at the time was fairly exploitational of its idea. But it's but the novel is written in a kind of pseudo-poetry, mm. so that nothing's really described. So it kind of gets away with making allusions instead of descriptions. So there's been five different film versions of The Blue Lagoon, which have variously starred people like Mila Jovovich was mm. in one of them, and... Um, Oh, I can't remember the the one in the forties had somebody pretty famous, like not Rita Hayworth, but somebody of that level of mm. fame in it. But this one casts a fourteen-year-old mm. in its lead role, somebody who had infamously appeared as a child prostitute two years earlier and caused a furore, somebody who at the age of ten had stripped off for Playboy mm. with her mother's. Not just consent, but blessing. Somebody who, the year this came out, was at the age of 14 in an advertising campaign for jeans in which she and the adverts were banned, Mm. in which she makes it patently obvious to the camera that she's not wearing any underwear under the jeans. She's a sexualised 14-year-old, and the director goes to town on putting a sexualised 14-year-old on screen and makes the film so anodyne that he's kind of disguising his pornographic intent. Mm. There's a lot of nudity in the film, which is almost all body doubles, but it's not all body doubles. This 14-year-old girl, obviously it's Brooke Shields we're talking about, right, Mm. does appear nude, fully nude in the film at various points, albeit tastefully shot. Do you know... I don't think I'm a prude, and I've seen an awful lot of stuff, but I've got to say The Blue Lagoon made my skin crawl. It is very uncomfortable watching it. Mm -hmm. And I just thought... You see, it's not the idea of the story, Mm. which is basically a really bland version of... um, Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, meets... Swiss Family Robinson. Yeah, meets... um, Romeo and Juliet, oh, actually. Okay. It has several Romeo and Juliet beats in there yeah. as well. Okay. Like the um, mutual suicide at the end. Okay. There's a mutual suicide at the end of this as well. Okay. So it's got lots of beats from Romeo and Juliet, lots of beats from Robinson Crusoe, and beats that would later turn up after the novel in... What's the 60s novel about the kids who get lost on an island? Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. Couldn't think of the name. So it's kind of a bit... Or it should be a bit Lord of the Flies as well. But it's really anodyne. It's really bland. But it's, but it's just the idea of saying, right, we'll make a version of this film and we will use the most shocking 14-year-old actress that we can get and put her on the screen in this. That just makes me think everybody involved in that film knew exactly what they were doing. Mm. And it comes out of the same sensibility that has now caused Operation Utree, where people in the 1970s mm. just thought, no, the rules don't apply anymore. Mm. There was a certain mindset that obviously all those people had, which just seemed to say, who cares about the rules? And certain rules aren't rules about law, but they're just rules about morals. Mm. And 
I don't know, the Blue Lagoon is just, I found it morally repugnant. And like I say, I don't think I'm remotely approved. No, there's nothing, there's nothing like Operation Nutrient to close a blue box podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there we go. Right, so next week, so our plan for the next three months is to get together on Saturday nights, if we can, yeah. to watch the episodes and then upload the podcast to um, Starburst as soon as possible afterwards. So the next podcast you'll hear will be our review of the pilot and it will probably be out at some point on the Sunday or the Monday, and that will be the pattern for the next three months after that. So until then, I was JR. I was Matt. I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. <laughs> <laughs>